yet, buddy. We're not done. <laughs> but we will be. My husband and I were married on a Sunday morning, August 8, 2004. We decided on a Sunday morning for one simple reason. It was the cheapest available time slot at the venue we had chosen, and our funds were tight. He had just graduated from law school, and I had finished with my master's the December before and moved from Austin to Houston to be near him during our engagement. He was 26 years old, and I was 25 when we were married, and we had known each other by that time for quite a long time. We first met the summer before my freshman year of high school at speech and debate camp, and we quickly became good friends. When you're a 15-year-old girl who goes to speech camp for fun during summer break, and you just happen across a 16-year-old boy with great hair, nice arms, and his own car, who also goes to speech camp for fun during summer break, you grab hold of that guy and you hang on tight. And that is exactly what I did. So despite the fact that he and I knew each other for a full decade before we were married, there was still a significant learning curve when we moved in together. So it seems that although we knew much, there was still much that we did not know. And I often got this feeling that I thought I had already learned something, but then I would have to go back and relearn that very same thing. So we're 17 years into our marriage and we are still learning new things and relearning old things regarding how to navigate life well together. And that is just the nature of a growing relationship. It's the way things work, right? Sometimes you have to learn and relearn things over and over again. At times, that can be a very beautiful process, and at other times, it is just plain messy and hard. And so that's what I was thinking about as I was trying to wrap my head around what we've studied of the book of Numbers so far and relate to it and understand it. Right? God came to dwell with the Israelites at the end of Exodus in chapter 40, and so much of what has happened in their story since that time has been a result of them acclimating to his presence among them, of them learning and then relearning about how to live life and navigate it in the presence of a holy God, of them learning about who he was and, and who they were in light of them of them learning uh, how to recognize his voice and then how to respond rightly to what he has said. And as we have seen, there has been a significant learning curve involved in that process, so much so that the Israelites have begun to question if this was something that they could even do at all. Could they really dwell in the presence of a holy God? It had now proven itself to be several times over a very difficult and a very dangerous endeavor, and they were becoming more and more uncertain of their ability to do so. So if you remember, in response to the Lord's judgment upon them for their repeated rebellion, chapter 17 ended with the Israelites proclaiming, we're lost. We're all lost. Anyone who comes near the tabernacle of the Lord will die. Will we all perish? 
So the Israelites have gotten many things wrong over these last several weeks of study, but this question is something that they actually get right. It is a necessary question, especially in light of everything that's unfolded over these last several weeks of study. How can a sinful people live so near a holy God? In this week's section of scripture, the Lord is going to provide an answer. So let's get started by looking at chapter 18. We're going to begin in verse 1. The Lord said to Aaron, you, your sons, and your ancestral family will be responsible for iniquity against the sanctuary. You and your sons will be responsible for iniquity involving the priesthood, but also bring your relatives with you from the tribe of Levi, your ancestral tribe, so that they may join you and assist you and your sons in front of the tent of the testimony. They are to perform duties for you and for the whole tent. They must not come near the sanctuary equipment or the altar, otherwise both they and you will die. They are to join you and guard the tent of meeting, doing all the work at the tent, but no unauthorized person may come near you. You are to guard the sanctuary and the altar so that wrath will not fall on the Israelites again. In chapter 18, the Lord responds to the Israelites' cry at the end of 17 that all who come near the tabernacle are doomed. Both in who he addresses and in the content of the message, he assures the Israelites that he has already provided them with that thing that they are crying out for, the priesthood. So first, if you were reading very closely, you may have noticed that the Lord switches things up on us just a bit here. Verse 1 says that the Lord said to Aaron. So this is really unusual, right? Generally, we have seen that the Lord is speaking to Moses. There have been a couple of times when he has addressed Moses and Aaron. There has been other times when he has told Moses to tell Aaron something. But here, he is speaking to Aaron, to specifically Aaron, and to only Aaron, because this message was for the high priest of Israel. The priesthood was the answer to the Israelites' concerns. So God reminds the Israelites that it is because of and through the priesthood that they are able to maintain fellowship with him. The priest would be their representatives. The priest would come near to God on their behalf. And the priest would, from this time forward, bear the iniquity for any trespass made against the tabernacle. So if an unauthorized person or if someone who was unclean came too near the tabernacle, then the priest and the Levites, whose job it was to guard against that, would take the blame. One of the commentators described their role as being that of spiritual lightning conductors, taking upon themselves the wrath of God's anger when someone sinned against the tabernacle so that the people as a whole would not perish. We also see in this chapter that God re-emphasizes in light of recent events, so namely the rebellions that we read about last week of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, that he and he alone is the one who appoints the priest. 
He also further emphasizes that he is the one who has established the hierarchy of the Levitical priesthood. So the Levites were responsible for guarding against any unauthorized trespass against the tabernacle by lay Israelites. And the priests, in turn, were responsible for guarding against any future attempt made by the Levites to usurp the duties of the priest. If either the priest or the Levites failed at their guard duty, then the blame would be theirs to bear. Last week, Christy touched on the fact that we saw God exalting a humbled Aaron, and we certainly see the continuation of that theme in this week as well. The role that Aaron and his sons, and, and even the Levites to a degree, were, were to play came with a very great deal of honor, but it also came with a very great deal of liability. As those who served closest to the holy presence of God, they were putting themselves at a very great degree of risk. It was the 18th century French philosopher Voltaire who first said that with great privilege comes great responsibility. But even centuries before Voltaire's wisdom rang true, we see that Jesus told his disciples, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. So the priesthood was indeed a gift, but it was not something to be coveted as it was by Korah, because with the very great privilege of priesthood came the responsibility and the risk that came with being a priest as well. So God gave the priesthood as a gift to those who had the honor of serving in that capacity, but he also, on a very real level, gave it as a gift to every Israelite who would benefit so greatly and who would be at a less amount of danger and risk because of the work that the priests were doing on their behalf. So let's go back to the text, and we are going to pick up in verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, Look, I have put you in charge of the contributions brought to me. As for all the holy offerings of the Israelites, I have given them to you and your sons as a portion and a permanent statue. So in verses 8 through 24, the Lord goes on to describe for Aaron what he and his sons and the Levites would receive in recognition for their services. They would receive part of the holy offerings and the gifts and the uh, first fruits and the dedications that the Israelites gave to the Lord. This was the means by which they were to live and the means by which they were to provide for their families. So if the Israelites were faithful to give their offerings and their tithes as the Lord had commanded them, then that would result in a very sizable income for the Levites and the priests. And it was an acknowledgement of the importance of the work that they performed. And in the New Testament, we even see Jesus stressing a very similar message. He told his disciples as he'd sent them off to spread the good news of the gospel. He said, don't acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt or sandals or staff for the worker is worthy of his food. 
The Apostle Paul also wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians, he said, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? So both Jesus and Paul expected that those who were recipients of the gospel recognized its worth by adequately caring for those who were ministers of it. So the priest and the Levites would receive compensation for the difficult and the dangerous work that they performed in the tabernacle, but what they would not receive was an inheritance of land when they came to settle in Canaan. The priests were not to concern themselves with the tilling of land or with the tending of cattle to care for themselves and their families, but their full attention and their full focus was to remain on the Lord and on their service to his tabernacle. So the Lord himself would be their portion and they would remain dependent upon the Lord to provide for them and the Lord would do so through the gifts of the people. So we see in that way just this really purposeful and this really beautiful interdependence built between the priest and the Levites and the people. The people would depend on the work that the priest and the Levites performed in the tabernacle on their behalf, and then the priest and the Levites would also really depend on the people to continue giving the gifts that the Lord had asked them to in order to support them. So in order for the system to work as the Lord had intended, that means that every single person was to act in obedience to the Lord and then rely on the Lord to provide for them in the way that he said that they would. So as we turn into chapter 19, we see that the Lord is still focusing our attention on the centrality of the priesthood. The question that the Israelites asked at the end of chapter 17, will we all perish? That question still looms large. And here in 19, the Lord is continuing to answer. So in 18, we saw that the priests were mediators between the people and God, and that it was because of the work that the priests did that the people could maintain fellowship with the Lord. And then in chapter 19, we're going to see the necessity of the priest in the process of making atonement and purifying the people and cleansing them from impurity so that they could continue to dwell in the camp of God. And this is the context in which we are given the purification ritual of the red cow. So the ritual that we see described in Numbers chapter 19 is completely unique in terms of the sacrificial system of ancient Israel. I mean, we see nothing else like this in all of the Old Testament, and it's strange to us, right? It's probably the strangest thing that we have seen in the book of Numbers so far, although the ritual, the jealousy ritual, right? Remember back in chapter five, definitely comes in a close second. Um, so allow me to read to you a quote from biblical scholar Gordon Winham that really helped me begin to make sense of what we have here. Winham writes, 
To many modern people, rites such as the one described here look like mumbo jumbo, sheer magic that shows how primitive and unsophisticated the men of the Old Testament were. But it is now recognized by anthropologists that whether the rituals are found in Africa or in ancient text, their practitioners are not acting in ignorance. They are not doing something magical. Rather, such ceremonies, just like ours, express the deepest truths about life as society sees them. So Winham said that rituals such as these express the deepest truths about life. So the Lord had given this ritual to the Israelites as a means of teaching them a truth of extreme significance. What is that truth? Let's turn to the text of chapter 19, and then we will return to that question. 19.1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. This is the legal statute that the Lord has commanded. Instruct the Israelites to bring to you an unblemished red cow that has no defect and has never been yoked. Give it to the priest Eleazar, and he will have it brought outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. The priest Eleazar is to take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. The cow is to be burned in his sight. Its hide, flesh, and blood are to be burned along with its waist. The priest is to take cedar wood, hyssop, and crimson yarn and throw them into the fire when the cow is burning. Then the priest must wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. After that, he may enter the camp, but he will remain ceremonially unclean until evening. The one who burned the cow must also wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. He will remain unclean until evening. A man who is clean is to gather up the cow's ashes and deposit them outside the camp in a ceremonially clean place. The ashes will be kept by the Israelite community for preparing the water to remove impurity. It is a sin offering. Then the one who gathers up the cow's ashes must wash his clothes, and he will remain unclean until evening. This is a permanent statute for the Israelites and for the alien who resides among them. So verses 1 through 10 describe this elaborate ritual that is to be performed in order to produce ashes that are to be mixed with water and then used to remove impurity. And then if we read further into chapter 19, we see that in verses 11 through 22, we're given a lot more detail regarding the specific circumstances in which this special mixture is to be used. And it's in those later verses that we come to realize that this entire ritual is specifically designed to cleanse the Israelites from the contamination associated with death. So what deep truth was the Lord teaching the Israelites through the giving of this ritual? That death contaminates and it must be dealt with. 
So the contamination of death is something that we've already encountered in our study of Numbers so far. If you remember back in Numbers chapter 5, we learned that anyone who had been defiled because of a corpse had to leave the camp for a time so that they would not defile the place where God lived among them. And then here in chapter 19, we're given some more of the specifics. Anyone who touched a corpse, anyone who touched a human bone or a grave, anyone who entered into the tent of someone who had died became contaminated, and then that uncleanness could spread to others. So anything that that person touched would become infected, and then the infection or the contamination could spread to anyone who touched that object. So you can see how really quickly this could become a rather large problem. You know, the manner in which we live today makes it quite possible for us to separate ourselves somewhat from death in a way that would have been absolutely unimaginable for the Israelites. Right? We have entire professions of people who take care of the dead and the dying for us. So as a result, it's possible for many of us to quite happily remain just very removed from many of the realities of death for most, if not all of our lives. But what we have to understand is that was not the case for the Israelites, nor was it the case for any other people group who were living up until fairly modern times. Just last week, we read that 14,700 people were killed in the plague. And we know that an entire generation of Israelites are going to die in the wilderness before the next generation can actually continue making their way into the promised land. The death of just a single person under normal circumstances would quite necessarily pollute many other people. Think of the people who, who were with that person, providing comfort and care when they died. The people who cared for the body, who came in, who stripped it, who washed it, who carried it out of the tent, and who performed the burial. So can you imagine, given the great number of recent deaths, the amount of contamination and defilement that the Israelites were dealing with. It would have been virtually impossible for them to separate themselves from the contamination that was associated with death. It would have been a sense of just constant concern and worry for them. And it really made me pause and ask the question, why? Why would God ordain that something so inescapable, given our mortal condition, be deemed so defiling? And I think that we can really safely come to at least a couple of conclusions there. So first, we've already discussed previously in this study how God, the life-giving force of the universe, stands in opposition to death. In Mark chapter 12, we read that he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And in John 10, Jesus said that the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but that he had come that we may have life and that we may have life abundantly. 
So God opposes death. Secondly, there is just an inescapable connection between death and sin in the biblical narrative. Death entered into the garden as a result of sin. Romans 5.12 says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's a reference to Adam in the garden, and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. So death is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. God is the giver of life, and sin is that which separates us from him. So if we are removed from the source of life because of sin, we are spiritually dead. And we've been given a portrait of this just in, in the narrative of the book of Numbers so far. So if you guys can remember back to those first chapters when everyone was still doing everything just as the Lord commanded, we weren't reading about death and destruction and plagues in those chapters. But as the Israelites increased in the amount of sin and rebellion against the Lord, so we've also seen this massive increase in the amount of death as well. Just as it was impossible for the Israelites to live life in the wilderness untouched by the contamination of death, so it is also impossible for you and I to live life in this world and remain untouched from the contamination of sin. Romans 5.17 tells us that from the very first moment Adam sinned in the garden that death has reigned on this earth through sin. It is an inescapable means of contamination that must be dealt with. And here in Numbers chapter 19, God assures us that he has provided a means of purification. God provided this ritual for the Israelites so that they would have an ever-ready means of purification from the contamination of death. And he has also provided us with an ever-ready means of purification from the contamination of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 John 1.7 says that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we don't have to really sit and wonder if God really intended for this ritual buried in the heart of the book of Numbers, if he really intended that to point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ because he comes right out and he tells us that that is exactly what he is pointing us toward. In Hebrews chapter 9, we read this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead work so that we can serve the living God? So we see here that in the New Testament book of Hebrews, the efficacy 
of the blood of Christ is compared to the purification power of the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who have been defiled. Thus, this ceremonial purification ritual buried in the book of Numbers points those of us who read and study it today, one, to the very great need of dealing with the contamination of death that is sin, and two, God's remedy for it through the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Wynham said, Rituals such as these express the deepest truths about life. So if you've been conditioned at all to read the Old Testament looking for the person of Jesus Christ, then you may very well have picked up on some of the ways in which this ritual uh, anticipates him. So I've picked out a few of the ones that I found particularly compelling, although the list is endless. So first, just as the red cow was to be unblemished and with no defect, 1 Peter 1.19 likewise describes Christ as being spotless and unblemished. Just as the red cow was to be slaughtered outside the camp, which once again was completely unique to the sacrificial practices of ancient Israel, we also see in the New Testament that each one of the gospel writers emphasized the fact that Jesus was taken outside the gates of the city to be crucified. The book of Hebrews chapter 13 described it by saying that he suffered outside the gate, outside the camp. Third, we see specified in verses 18 and 19 that the cleansing ritual had to be performed by someone who was ceremonially clean and undefiled. And in Hebrews 7, Christ is described as being holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. Fourth, in the later verses of chapter 19, you may have noticed that the process of cleansing the defiled person made everybody who participated in the cleansing of that person unclean themselves. So the clean person became defiled through the cleansing of the defiled one. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says of Christ that he who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of Christ in him. And then 1 Peter chapter 2 says of Jesus that he himself bore our sin in his body. And finally, in the same way that the ashes produced by just a single red heifer could be used to purify just countless numbers of people over a time span of many many years, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. And 1 John chapter 2 says that he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also the sins of the entire world. 
It seems appropriate here that as we end our first half of our study of numbers, that here, on the heels of so much sin and so much rebellion and so much brokenness, that here God would so clearly and poignantly point us to the purification power of Christ. A purification so potent that it doesn't merely just cleanse us from the power of sin and death, but it actually defeats those things. I mean, if you were listening to what we were singing just before we started, oh death, where is your sting? Oh fear, where is your power? The mighty king of kings has disarmed you. That's the truth that we're studying about in this chapter of scripture today. And we can just add the purifying effect of the ashes of the red heifer as to one of the many ways in which the Old Testament scriptures point us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we've already seen so many shadows of him in our study of numbers so far. So when the Israelites celebrated the first holiday of Passover, we were reminded that the lamb points us to Christ. All of the sacrifices which were intended to help us enter into and then maintain a relationship with God, they also point us to Christ. Moses, the mediator of the covenant and God's chosen leader of his people, points us to Christ. Aaron, the high priest of Israel, also points us to Christ. And the entire priesthood and the work that they performed on behalf of the people point us to Christ. The work of Christ is so vast in its measure that it could never be encapsulated by a single person or a single event or even an entire system of things. It takes the entirety, the sum total of every single book in the Old Testament to adequately testify to the work that Jesus Christ would do and still the people of God are left needing and wanting and hoping that God would actually wrap flesh around the promises that he has made us. And in the New Testament, that is exactly what he does. God wraps flesh around the promises that he has made us. You see, the entire storyline of the book of Numbers is looking forward to this time and this place when the Israelites will dwell in the place of God's promise as his holy people. But the book of Numbers is just a small chunk, right? It's a small part of this big story that the Lord is telling. And the entire storyline of humanity looks forward to a time and a place when all of us who believe in Jesus Christ will dwell in the place of God's promise as his people, holy and redeemed. The book of Revelation provides us with a foretaste of this time and place of God's promise. It says, look, God's tabernacle is with humanity and he will live with them. 
they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. The one who conquers will inherit these things. When we return in the spring for the second half of our study of numbers, we'll see that the Israelites will indeed persist in their pursuit of the promises that God has made them. Despite their former rebellion and their former sin and all of the ensuing brokenness, they will turn and they will set their hearts and their minds on conquering that which the Lord has given them. And so must you and I, as those who follow Christ today, we also must persist in our pursuit of the promises that he has made us. Despite our former sin and despite our former rebellion and despite all of the brokenness that ensued, we too must turn and set our hearts and our minds on conquering those things which he has promised us. It is always such a great joy and privilege to share with you about these things, ladies, and we will be eagerly anticipating our return for the spring study of semester. So let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, you are indeed Lord, the source and the author and the giver and the sustainer of life. God, you have provided us with purification through the blood of your son, Jesus, who has conquered once and for all, finally and forever, death and sin. God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the faith to persist in our pursuit of these things, God, that you would help us to believe. Lord, we thank you for the very great power through which you have accomplished these things, God. And we, your people, praise you for who you are and for all that you have done, Lord. And we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's in his beautiful name that we pray these things. Amen. Ladies, will you stand and worship with us?